American manufacturers come home. All is forgiven. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Now, over the past two decades, we've seen a virtual stampede of manufacturing capacity from the U.S. to China. Companies were chasing after cheap labor at a fraction of what it costs to make products in America. Recently, however, China's wage rates have been climbing steeply, and companies are beginning to realize that there's more to a product's total cost than what you pay a factory worker. My guest today talks about the reshoring of manufacturing back to the Western Hemisphere. He's Sean Atkins, Managing Director and Operations Excellence Practice Leader with the business and technology consulting firm of West Monroe Partners, LLC. Sean helped me to understand how much of this reshoring trend is real and how much is anecdotal. So here is my conversation with Sean Atkins. John Atkins, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Now, you have gone on record as believing that the trend of reshoring of manufacturing from China back to the United States is, quote, a bona fide movement, unquote, correct? Correct. That is true. And you, uh, in fact, released an infographic dramatizing some of your points. Uh, We'll link to that on our uh, podcast page. But I'd like to ask you about details of that. Why do you feel that China is becoming less viable as a manufacturing source? Well, there's a few uh, few reasons, uh, most notably that uh, a rise in wage rates for the middle class in China is putting a situation where what once was low-cost labor uh, and a low-cost labor option for manufacturers, suddenly the gap is narrowing. Uh, pretty quickly uh, in that. Uh, At the same time, um, they don't have as many workers uh, available to actually service the needs um, of those manufacturers. And I think then the last leg in the stool uh, really becomes issues around IP and IP theft, um, where um, folks have maybe made a decision to move operations to China and suddenly figured out that uh, someone has decided they want to knock their product off uh, and make it in the facility next door, and unfortunately, their ability to go have some recourse there is, is becoming challenging. So when you when you piece all these things together, it's uh, difficult to actually execute, manage, and protect your, your IP, uh, then compared against rising wage rates, um, the, the value proposition is, is closing uh, rapidly. And I guess one thing you did not mention is that companies are starting to realize this concept of total landed cost, which not only involves the cost of manufacturing, but also the cost of getting product to market uh, when your manufacturing source is thousands of miles away, right? Yeah, that, that's absolutely true, Bob, and I would tell you that um, the, the attractiveness of this option when, when folks decided to offshore uh, manufacturing, the cost uh, was so, the cost difference was so wide uh, that it made an awful lot of sense, and, and oh, oh, by the way, the 
the uh, total landed cost and ability to get that product in the hand was far offset by the cost savings to manufacture the product. And again, as you start to narrow the gap on that wage rate and what it costs to make the product, it only puts that much more pressure on the entire supply chain um, uh, to make sure that that, uh, that value is still there. And it's, to your point, it's, it's not as much as it used to be. Yeah. Now, what about that IP issue? Uh, I can't believe the companies were naive enough to think that this wasn't a possibility when they first went to China, or were they? Uh, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, it's probably a little bit of both. Uh, I, I think to the extent that there was some um, uh, awareness, uh, there maybe was a belief that they could control uh, and perhaps had just not had enough exposure to actually working in China and what the local laws and regulations, um, how they would protect or not protect them. Um, so I, I, I would agree there's probably some um, some misses in, in people's expectations. But on the flip side, uh, at the same time, um, people might have been willing to turn a blind eye uh, just knowing what the cost difference was and actually truly having that belief that they could uh, control something that, that it turns out they just couldn't. Yeah. You also said that you felt that Chinese uh, manufacturing facilities are having a harder time finding workers. Is there indeed a labor shortage in China's manufacturing sector today? It's true. So if you if you look at, uh, based on the data that we've uh, been able to assemble, um, the, the pool of workers that we would classify in the sweet spots uh, for manufacturers to target, which is the 15 to 39 year range, um, that number uh, of available uh, people actually dropped um, by 32 million people from the period of 2007 to 2012. So um, the, the pool of available workers is actually decreasing. And again, as mentioned, when you now couple that with um, rises in, in cost of living expectations and, and therefore wages, uh, it puts quite a squeeze on the ability to find valuable resources that can execute this work. Where are they going? Those missing people. Uh, it's 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 purely a it's purely a population play based on um, at least as far as we can understand uh, based on just uh, available people. So it's more generational and, and population trends as opposed to people leaving China to go elsewhere. Because we think of China as having an inexhaustible labor pool, an endless flow of potential workers coming from rural areas to the urban centers and the manufacturing centers, but is, has that stopped or slowed? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, uh, and I think from what we see, um, the, the urban centers um, are, are experiencing this, and that's where actually that pool is drawing from. Um, there are a lot of rural areas, but uh, in many respects, these rural areas um, feel like almost a different country uh, if, you've, if you've been to China and, and see what's going on there. Um, so, so we actually would think about these two things as almost separate entities in many respects. Uh, it, it truly is a different world in these rural areas. Because the original pool of labor during the Chinese manufacturing boom, and I, I guess I don't want to suggest that's over, but what brought it to being was a lot of workers coming from rural areas to south uh, southeast China, right? Yeah, it, correct. And, and now if you, if you look at um, the trends, we're just not seeing as much movement there and, and ability for, for uh, those people to be sourced in the major markets of uh, Shanghai, um, Beijing, Shenzhen, et cetera. So it's just um, there aren't as many available folks. Let's turn to the U.S. What does the U.S. have to offer as an alternative to Chinese manufacturing? 
Well, there, there's a couple things, and I think it first starts with uh, quality. Uh, certainly anybody that, I shouldn't say anybody, but uh, one of the key components of a, a Made in America label and what comes along with that is, is a perceived level of quality, and not always perceived. Uh, in many respects, it's real. So uh, for, for manufacturers of a product where quality can be a differentiator, uh, I think it starts there. Um, people are willing to pay a premium for the product, not only based on their own uh, you know, desire to help the U.S. economy, but more importantly, they're willing to pay for quality. Uh, and therefore, the wage rate that we would be charging um, uh, to make a product here in the States, they can recoup that based on uh, a higher purchase price. So uh, I think as a starting point, it, it, it focuses on quality. But, but the, the secondary component here would just be uh, access and proximity to the customer base. Uh, and ability, and your, to, to your point earlier, around total landed cost to make sure that um, uh, we're delivering the product to a customer in a, in a, a quick and low-cost manner. I guess so much less buffer stock would also be needed, the buffer stock that was built up in expectation of potential glitches in those longer supply lines. Companies can now reduce their inventories, but I guess the question is, do reduced inventory costs do they balance out? Do they uh, do they account for or overbalance the higher wages you're still going to have to pay to U.S. workers? Yes. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I think a higher wage uh, is all relative uh, because it, it relates to the total options that you've got available. And I think the interesting point here too is, as we think about reshoring. Um, the, the natural tendency is to talk about China versus the United States, but this truly is becoming a global play. Uh, and you're seeing companies look for options that are outside China that are closer to their customers and might be looking at Mexico, say, for example, uh, or might be looking at other low-cost Asian countries that they can move the product to. But from, from our perspective, um, the, 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 big, uh, he, the big issue here shouldn't always be uh, where you find the low-cost labor, I think to your point, it's about looking at the total cost uh, of delivery and making sure that uh, we understand from sourcing straight through to delivery of the, the product to the end consumer um, what the value proposition is. And, and so many people uh, made a decision to, to move for low-cost labor. Uh, and what we're guarding against and, and wanting folks to be aware of is let's not make that same mistake again and move back or move somewhere else for, again, what's perceived to be low-cost labor on the manufacturing side, but forget the remainder of the supply chain equation. Okay, well, let's talk about Mexico. Doesn't that offer the best of both worlds, proximity to markets, plus low labor costs? Uh, it certainly can. Um, but, but, again, I think that there's, there's a component here, too, where you still are operating uh, in, in a country that uh, – you may not have native operations in, and therefore your ability to to control and protect your product. I think there still can be some uh, some issues around uh, IP. It's certainly a, a lot less than what we would expect to see in China, and we'd have more protections there given the uh, the, the relationship we have. Uh, but um, it, it won't be for everyone. Uh, but it certainly is something that can be part of the equation for evaluation. And you have an existing infrastructure of Dora facilities already there waiting to be uh, utilized or reutilized, re do you not? Yeah, that, that's correct. And, and obviously our ability to flow goods across uh, border uh, is becoming much more 
um, uh, possible, I guess, and easier to do. So uh, it certainly should be part of an evaluation equation that someone is looking at it it when they're determining where to put their operations next. You talk about this as a global play. To what extent uh, might other parts of Asia, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, serve as potential alternatives to China? I know, again, we still have the distance problem. We have the total landed cost problem. But we certainly do get away from those rising wages in China. So are those potential alternatives, or are we really talking about reshoring back to the Western Hemisphere? Yeah, no, it, we certainly uh, see trends uh, in countries, as you mentioned, like Vietnam uh, being being very predominant as a, as a, a next place uh, to evaluate and explore. I think the hard part um, here is globalization of customers, too. It's not just where I may be able to put my operation because there's qualified labor uh, or ability to execute the manufacturing or source my materials. Um, the, the marketplace is changing from the end consumer perspective as well, and that puts us in a spot now where it's hard for folks to predict maybe where the best place for their operation is, uh, knowing where customer demand is going to be driven from. Uh, and so in many respects, I would tell you that there may not be a perfect answer or, or it might not be a one-size-fits-all answer. Uh, it may need to be a multi-pronged strategy that considers operations that um, really are driven by by your customer base and your ability to source materials and labor. And your industry, I'd imagine. Which industries do you think are most likely to experience reshoring back to the West and the United States and uh, specifically? Yeah, we, we've really about, I think we've seen um, industries, uh, well, a wide range of industries that are considering it uh, and, and have made some moves. Um, so, um, we, we did some studies that looked at uh, over 100 American manufacturing firms, um, and really it was uh, across all industries um, that there was a, an intent or a desire to, to, to move uh, facilities either back to the U.S. or closer. Um, but, but certainly, to your point, I think higher tech uh, and, and things where, um, where quality um, is a key differentiator, uh, maybe an opportunity for, for things to be here in the state specifically. And you would think also industries that are less labor-intensive, right? Yeah, for sure, for sure. Because uh, that makes me wonder about the potential irony of jobs coming back to America, but they won't be done by humans. There'll be these highly mechanized uh, type of operations where robots will do most of the work, and, and so where's the advantage to Americans then? Well, it, it, in the, the, I think there's there's uh, two different concepts here at play. I mean, one is the, the benefits that go to and accrue to uh, the manufacturer and distributor of the products versus, um, you know, you and I as American citizens and uh, getting more of our folks busy making the things that we buy. Um, and I, I think there is certainly um, a higher use uh, and tendency to look at automation uh, in the manufacturing process, but at the same time, um, there's an awful lot of manufacturing that's available uh, or uh, that's in play here that that just won't be an option uh, and uh, still has a good ways off. So um, the, the opportunity is uh, maybe closing a bit, um, but, but uh, there's still an awful lot that we can focus on in, in terms of bringing it back here that we can get our people work on. 
What's the situation so far? I mean, we've heard of some very high-profile cases. Apple talked about making some of its computers back here. Whirlpool is talking about, um, in fact, has already resumed um, construction of, of manufacture of appliances back in the U.S. Is it merely anecdotal at this point? Are they merely scattered examples? Or are you seeing a larger trend now? Um, well, I think we're certainly seeing a groundswell in terms of um, folks that are talking about it and are interested in it. And I would tell you that um, some of that is real. And, and to be frank, some of it may just be for marketing purposes. Uh, that, that, and I don't mean to make any specific examples there, uh, but, but in a general sense, um, as Americans hear more about this and get frustrated with why aren't we able to make these products here, um, uh, certainly companies have an incentive out loud to suggest that this is part of their strategy. Um, I think making the rubber hit the road here, um, uh, literally, and, and getting things moving back, um, it, it's not as um, active as maybe the conversation would suggest, but, but there certainly is movement um, uh, happening. To what extent are human rights and labor conditions really a factor here? Now, I have seen surveys of businesses that claim that, yes, they are considering reshoring, coming back to the United States, back to the Western Hemisphere, but not because they're worried about the way that workers are being treated at Foxconn or anywhere else in Asia. It's a cost play on their part. So, number one, does business consider that to be a factor in its relocation? And number two, do consumers care? Um, I, I'm not sure, to be frank with you. I'm not sure how much business actually cares. Uh, again, they may be forced to care um, based on public perception and or, or issues that have happened, like um, the, the, the case that was in Bangladesh, uh, you know, not, in, in the not-too-recent past, where the more publicity around those sorts of things that occur, it does put it in a situation where it's a cyclical loop and, and consumers are going to require and demand that businesses have safe practices and that they're not um, abusing workers for the benefit of delivering a low-cost product. Um, so I don't know that I necessarily see those as separate issues. I, I believe they're kind of one and the same, and, and, and um, you know, the business choices, I believe, are really dictated by consumer perception and demands. And what is consumer perception in that area? Does the consumer care? You know, we're, we're, a, we're a greedy bunch as consumers, uh, <laughs> and, and particularly uh, American consumers in the sense that um, I think we like to, we like to wave the flag and, and talk about how important it is to us, but at the, at the end of the day, we're all dealing with what we perceive to be limited funds uh, and an endless supply of things that we would like. Um, and so I, I don't know about if I could tell you exactly where the, 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 the line of demarcation there uh, is, but suffice it to say that uh, for us consumers, as a general matter, low cost is going to win uh, until there's such a reason why uh, this is not um, something I'm willing to do anymore. So what but about... That's an awfully long reach. Yeah, yeah. What about the factor of China's own growing middle class, its own attempts to develop a domestic market, the idea that China could take those same factories that are geared for export and simply turn them around to serve its own markets, and maybe even U.S. brands would want to sell there. To what extent might that hold back the transfer of manufacturing capacity to the West, keep it in China for China? 
it's a, it's a great point, and, and I think it goes directly to that concept of this can't be a decision based on the same criteria that we used 10, 15 years ago about moving operations away from the U.S. to a low-cost country. Because to your point, consumer demands are growing and growing rapidly uh, in markets specifically like China. So the, the answer here really needs to focus on how your customer base is changing and where you predict your customer base to be. And certainly we see a lot of U.S. companies that they, they believe they've uh, seen most of the growth that they will see domestically here, and their growth vehicle is going to come from international and emerging markets. And so, uh, again, I think we would, we would caution against making a one-time decision focused only on cost to produce and based on where your customers are today because in five years that could look different to your point, and suddenly I decide I actually do need a manufacturing facility again in China to serve customers in China. So what's our takeaway? What is the state of reshoring in 2013 and beyond? Well, as we as we started, uh, there's an awful lot of activity uh, and interest from uh, manufacturing organizations. And I would tell you, yes, it's around reshoring that has cachet uh, and something that people are starting to latch on to. Um, but from our perspective, this is not a U.S. versus China only conversation. This is really an opportunity to look at manufacturing and the total state of supply chain on a global basis. Um, and so uh, as we think about this discussion, um, it really needs to take that form. And, and the takeaway is this is not how to bring things back from the U.S. to China or back from China to the U.S. only. This is about how we think about things on a global basis to serve an ever-changing customer market. Sean Atkins, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks again. Sean Atkins of West Monroe Partners, LLC. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch over a 1,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter at SC Brain. See you next time.